of a passage of Scripture and to get the flow in our minds a little better. So let's begin at Romans chapter 7 and we'll begin with verse 13 where Paul uh, raises a possible misunderstanding to his teaching and then answers it. Verse 13, Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I'd like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Let's pray before we start in. Our Father, we are utterly cast upon You. We need Your Holy Spirit. We need Your power, Your illumination, Your grace. Think of how the psalmist said, Quicken Thou me and I will call upon Thee. We need to even be quickened by Your Spirit to even pray and to even call upon You. We're not able to worship apart from Your Spirit. You said we are the true circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. That's the only way that we can do it, by the power of Your Spirit. We're not able to hear uh, Your Word and to understand it apart from Your Spirit. And we're not able to preach the Word in any way that will give life apart from Your Spirit. So we ask You, Father, this morning for the power of the Holy Spirit, for the illumination of the Spirit, for the utterance of the Spirit, and the hearing and understanding of Your Holy Spirit. We pray for a spirit of faith and power and love and of a sound mind. Lord, we pray You'd clear the air and clear our hearts and minds and fill us this morning afresh with Yourself. And we ask You, Lord, to open up Your Word to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been 
considering for a couple of weeks now the context and the meaning of this controversial final section of Romans chapter 7. And last week what we did was first of all to make a brief survey of this whole section verse by verse, and then secondly we we considered how this fit with the general theme of law that Paul has been talking about uh, and dealing with in Romans 7. And then finally we looked at verse 14 and its meaning. Now when we did our brief survey or overview of this section, we found that it does in fact continue the, the theme that Paul has already been speaking about in Romans 7. First of all, verse 14 begins with the word for. In other words, Paul's not introducing some new thing that he hadn't been talking about going into some new uh, uh, unrelated subject, but he's answering and continuing uh, the thought of verse 13. And then secondly, we saw that the section deals with the goodness of the law right down through these verses. There's uh, the subject of the goodness of the law comes up, and that's what Paul has been dealing with uh, right down through here. And then thirdly, we saw that this section deals with the bondage to sin that is present under the law. And that goes right down through here. Bondage to sin is one of the themes of this section, under the law. And uh, fourthly, this section deals a lot, really, with the flesh. And then finally, it deals with the subject of death. And so all of those themes are things that Paul has already been talking about. Right up to verse 13, he's been talking about the law and sin and the flesh and death, all of those things. In fact, everything that he talks about in this section, he actually talks about all of those things in one verse, verse 5, which is the verse that opens this whole thing. And verse 5 says that when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bring forth fruit unto death. Now, all those things are the very things that are dealt with in this section. So, it's very clear then that that this section uh, is continuing the theme that Paul has already been discussing. And that theme is the goodness of the law in spite of its death-dealing effects upon those who are in the flesh. The goodness of the law in spite of the fact that it leads to death for people in the flesh. And uh, how can that be? Well, because sin is so bad that it can take even that which is good and turn it into death. And that's the whole point of this section. And so, uh, right down through here, he's dealing with the theme that's been, that he's been dealing with all along in Romans 7. And if we have any doubts about that, we only need to read verses 3 and 4 of chapter 8 where he sums up everything he's been saying. And he says, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh that the requirement or righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. So the exact opposite of Romans 7. He's talking about for the Christian, the requirement or the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in him because he walks in the Spirit. But um, 
what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. That's a summary of this section that we've just read. So, we have here in the last part of Romans 7 a description of a man who is, as verse 14 says, of flesh sold into bondage to sin. This is a man of flesh sold into bondage to sin. Yet he's not the typical lost man, but he's the man to whom the commandment has come. He has seen the spirituality and the desirability of the law, and he desperately wants to keep the law, but he can't. He finds himself unable to do it. And uh, he's a wretched man, and according to verse 23, he's a prisoner to the law of sin in his members. So in other words, here's a man that started to see the desirability and the goodness of the things of God. And he sets out to try to do those things, and he wants to do those things desperately, and he fails miserably, and he's wretched in that failure. So, with that basic understanding of these verses, um, we could almost ask, what's the use of spending any more time on this? What's the use of going down through here and looking at this in detail, verse by verse? And... um, To that I would answer that I don't think we really need to spend much longer on this in one way of looking at it. I mean, we don't need to spend weeks going through each verse. But I do want to go down through here at least enough that we understand Paul's basic arguments. And also, we do need to deal with any problem verses that seem to raise questions with the basic understanding that that I've given to you here of this passage. So that's what I want to try to do today. Lord willing, is just to go down through this section from verse 14 to verse 25 once more and try to make it clear what Paul is saying in each of these verses. And then, Lord willing, next time what we'll do is we'll, we'll go back and look at these three basic views that have been taken at Romans 7 and try to bring out some of the good points and the bad points of each of those views and some of the practical things. There's a lot of practical implications. You say, well, this stuff is so hard to understand and it's confusing and so on, well, we, can, we cannot take that attitude. And by faith, we don't have to take that attitude because this is the Word of God. And we know that it's given to us to be profitable for teaching, for correction, for instruction, for ourselves. It's given to us so that we might grow, so that we might learn, not so that the theologians might learn. So we have every reason to cry out to God to help us and uh, to look to Him to give us understanding in this section. You know, the things that we believe about this get right down into our actual lives. And if you have all your life have looked at Romans 7 as a description of Paul himself defeated by sin... It changes the way you live your life. Because here you're facing a sin and you come up against something, and the first thing the devil will tell you is, well, you can't really do anything about that. Even Paul didn't have victory. It's very practical the way we understand this section. And so, Lord willing, that's what we'll look at next time. I don't know how many more times we'll spend in Romans 7, but we want to at least look at those things before we move on to chapter 8. Okay, so let's go down through here then, beginning at verse 14, and uh, 
to try to go at this verse by verse. First of all, we saw last time that verse 14 is the foundational and controlling statement concerning this man in verses 14 through 25. What is the state of this man? How can he be described or characterized? Well, the description of this man is that he is of flesh sold into bondage to sin. Notice he doesn't say, part of me is of flesh sold into bondage to sin. He says, I am of flesh. This is a characteristic of this man. This is who he is as a person. He's not making a statement about part of himself, but he's making a statement about himself as a person. That's verse 14. How is this bondage to sin manifested? Well, verse 15. For that which I am doing I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. So that's how the bondage to sin is manifested in his life. He's not doing what he wants to do. He's doing the things he doesn't want to do. Now, uh, I don't think that he's saying here that he never, ever does anything right. He's not saying that. He's not saying that I don't do anything but sin all the time. But on the other hand, we don't have the right to insert the word occasionally in here and go the other direction. And this is what people do. This is the way they read it. They say, for that which I am occasionally doing, I do not understand. For occasionally I am not practicing what I would like to do, but occasionally I'm doing the very thing that I hate. See, that we don't have a right to introduce that either. And that's what people have to do if they say this is Paul writing about himself at the time uh, that he wrote the letter to the Romans. In other words, this is a Christian at his best. You have to insert the idea of occasionally he fails, occasionally. But that's not what he says here. So how should we understand this? Well, I think just this. He's not talking about what he occasionally does. He's not talking about what he all the time, absolutely always does. But he is describing the general characteristic of his life. And the general characteristic of his life is one of defeat by sin. See? That's what he's saying here. How is this bondage to sin that he talked about in verse 14 manifested? Well, it's manifested by habitual or general defeat is the way it's manifested. And so he describes in verse 15 a general pattern of defeat and frustration. Now verses 16 and 17, two conclusions that are drawn from verse 15. First of all, first conclusion given in verse 16, the law is good. If I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law confessing that it's good. Here's a guy that doesn't want to do what's wrong over here, and he goes ahead and does it. Well, he's just saying that the law standard is good. So that's pretty straightforward. Now, why is that important? Because Paul is drawing us back to the main subject here. He's reminding us what he's talking about in this passage. He's talking about the goodness of the law. He's talking about law. He's talking about why men fail under the law. And so he brings us back to the subject, law. And then verse 17, the second conclusion. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, 
but sin which indwells me. Now, notice this. He's not denying personal responsibility for what he does. He's not saying, well, I'm not that, you know, it wasn't me, it was my old nature that did this or something like that. Now, many people have done that. They've come to this passage and they say, well, it's not really my fault, you know, I can't help it. And there have actually been guys, believe it or not, that have used this in a court of law. I heard the account of this one time in Scotland where a guy stood before the judge and he said, I'm not, I can't help it. I'm not the one that did it. It was my old nature that did it. Now, you realize that doesn't go over in a court of law because you did it. And Paul is not saying when he says it's no longer I that do it, He's not saying, I didn't really do this. Yes, he, he did do it, and he is the wretched man, and he is the one that's crying out for deliverance. So he's not di- disclaiming personal responsibility. What is he saying here when he says, it's no longer I that do it? Well, he is the one doing it, but he says this, There is a force of evil dwelling in my members that seems to exist independent of my will and my desires and my attempts to do good. That's what he's saying. It's no longer I that do it. There's something, there's a power of evil in me that's too great for my wishing and my desires to overcome. It goes against and overthrows all my best intentions. So that's what he's saying here. And he's saying that because he wants us to get to the understanding that Sin dwells in our members. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Verses 18 to 20 then expand on verse 17 and make it clear. Verse 18 begins with the word for. For, now he says, no longer am I the one doing, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Now that Second phrase explains the first phrase. What's he mean? Nothing good dwells in me. I can't do good. All right? Now, this verse uh, presents a problem because this is one of the verses that's used to teach that Paul is speaking here of a regenerate man. Because he seems to make a distinction between himself and his flesh. He says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Well, my answer to that would be, along this line. That is, he says this because he wants to focus our attention on the source of the problem. He said, sin dwells in me. Where does it dwell? Well, he's getting ready to tell us, and he makes this clear as we go along. It's a law of sin in my members. It dwells in me, in my flesh. And the flesh is the problem. That's the way he started the section. The law is spiritual, but I'm a flesh, you see. So he's wanting to focus the attention on the problem. But if you have any question about it, all you've got to do is read the next half of the verse because he describes here, he's not just saying, when he says nothing good dwells in me, he's saying, for the wishing is present, but the doing of the good is not. In other words, there's one aspect of him that's wanting to do right, but there's something dwelling in his members that overcomes it and brings him into defeat and captivity. Not talking about tendencies here. We're talking about actual defeat by sin. So, um, he said in verse 17 that sin indwells him. Where does it indwell him? It's in his flesh. 
And that's spelled out very clearly in verse 23, this law of sin in his members. All right, verse 18. Nothing good dwells in me. What's the proof of that? Well, the last half of verse 18, the wishing is present, but the doing of the good is not. And then verse 19. The good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. Notice the... The two sides, positive and negative. On the one hand, he's wanting to do good and he doesn't do it. On the other hand, he doesn't want to do evil and he does do that. So both both things present here. Again, this is not absolute. I mean, he's not saying that I never ever do even one thing that's right. But on the other hand, you can't put the word occasional in there. Occasionally I do something wrong. You've got to say, what is this? It's a description of the general tenor of his life. He's defeated. He's a defeated man, and he's a wretched man. He's a prisoner. And uh, a general description of his conduct is that he's not doing the good that he wants to do, and he is doing the evil that he doesn't want to do. So it's just a general description of the practice of the man who is of flesh sold into bondage to sin, of flesh. Sold into bondage to sin. See how all these go back to verse 14? They all fit together. All right, all that's very straightforward. Um, But then we come on to verse 20. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now that's almost a restatement of verse 17. No longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. So verse 20 is nothing new. It's just a restatement. Then verse 21 sums up the position of this man. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. Now, when you see what he's saying here, you see that this is truly a wretched position to be in. First of all, This word wishes, the one who wishes to do good. He's wanting to do what's good, but he can't. And he's already said this in the last half of verse 18. The wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. And in verse 19, the good that I wish I do not do. So he's wishing, but that's all. He's not doing. And then he says, notice this, he says, evil is present in me. It's inside of me. It's part of what I am. It's the makeup. I am like this. I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. And then thirdly, he says, evil is present in me. And, uh, you know, you could take that and say, well, he's just saying that there's a tendency, you know, there's a temptation inside of me that goes against uh, what I'm wanting to do. And every Christian could say that. Their evil's always present, you know, trying to come up, uh, trying to tempt you astray and so on. But that's not what he means when he says evil is present, present in me. He's saying that there's a power in me that is so strong that it overcomes what I'm wanting to do. And we know that because we just need to read the next two verses. He explains that. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, 
waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. So, in other words, this law of sin in his members not only wages war with him, but it actually defeats him and makes him a prisoner. And that's what he's describing here. He's describing defeat. When he says evil is present in me, he's not saying there's a tendency there. He's saying it actually defeats me. So evil defeats him and makes him a prisoner. And again, this goes back to the thought of verse 14. I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. I'm defeated by sin. I'm in bondage to sin. And the reason is, is because this uh, sin dwells in my members. It's inside of me. A uh, different law in my members, members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind. All right. <clears throat> Again, all that is very straightforward, but in verse 22, there are a couple of things that we need to talk about. First of all, Paul says that he delights in the law of God, and that seems to be the opposite of an unregenerate person. And the second thing, he says that he delights in the law of God in the inner man. And people think, well, that sounds like a Christian because the inner man, that must be talking about the new man or it's talking about the innermost being, that kind of thought. And so how could he, how could he be anything other than a Christian? So let's deal with the last one first uh, because it seems to me to be the easiest one. What does Paul mean by this term inner man? Verse 22, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Is he talking about he's a new man, the new man? What's he talking about? And I think the answer is very clear because he tells us what he means in the next verse. He says, I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind. So what he means by inner man is his mind, that is his mind as as being confronted by the Holy Spirit, showing him what's right and good, and he's wanting to do it, as opposed to his members, the members of his body, you see? So he's contrasting when he says the inner man. He say, what he means is, he's saying, as opposed to my members, but the outer man, what you can see, I'm talking about the parts you can't see. Inside, I'm wanting with my mind to do what's good. But there's a law of sin in my members making me a prisoner. And so the inner man here is not the same thing as saying the new man or the innermost being. He's talking about just his mind. His mind as being confronted by the Holy Spirit and illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Uh, actually, Paul uses the very same terminology in 2 Corinthians 4.16. He says, Though our outer man perishes, yet our inner man is renewed day by day. Well, He's saying that as a Christian, but the terminology could apply to anybody. Here's your outer man. Your outer man's perishing. That is, he's, he's dying, and his body's decaying, and he's going downhill outwardly, but he says on the inside, the invisible part of me that you can't see, I'm getting stronger. Now, you could say about anybody, there's the part that you can see, and there's the part that you can't see. And he's saying, inside my inner man, that is in my mind, I'm delighting in what's right and wanting to do what's right. But he says, there's a law of sin in my members. 
Now, we have a hard time with this idea of sin trying to use our mortal bodies, but that's what we've seen all the way through Romans. When we got to chapter 6, we're going to see it more in chapter 8. He actually says, if you by the Holy Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. He calls sin a deed of the body. Even mental sins are deeds of the body. Now, that's hard to understand for us, but that's, that's what he's saying. Okay, <clears throat> so um, the inner man is the invisible part of Paul as opposed to the uh, visible part. And he says, In my mind I'm delighting in the law of God, but the law of, of sin in the members of my body is more powerful than that and makes me a prisoner to the law of sin in my members. All right, what about this phrase, I delight in the law of God? That seems to be totally opposite of an unregenerate person. I mean, the unregenerate man doesn't delight in the law of God. And to that, I would agree completely. Uh, In fact, in chapter 8, he tells us that the mind of the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. So, what's the explanation? Well, again... We're not talking about the typical lost man here in Romans 7. We're talking about somebody who is being dealt with by the Holy Spirit to see and is being convicted, which means convinced, that the law is good. For the first time, this guy is convinced that the law is lovely and desirable. He's not the lost man, the typical lost man. Here's the law of God outside of him telling him that what he's doing is wrong, but he hates that and he doesn't want that. He loves his sin. And he tries to excuse, he says that law is too demanding or that law is unreasonable. But this guy isn't in that position anymore. He's come to the place where he says that law is right. I can see that it's right. And I want to keep it, but I can't. In other words, this this is not the statement of a typical lost man. This is somebody that the Holy Spirit is illuminating. And I think the words of the Lord Jesus there in John 6, He says, Every man who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Me. And it's something that precedes coming to Christ when you start hearing and learning from the Father. And it always leads to coming to Christ. And this man, something's happened where he's learning, hearing and learning from God. And it does lead to him coming to Christ. That ends up happening. So, I agree that um, this man is not the typical lost man, but he's the man to whom the commandment has come. And that's what we've seen all the way down through here. Now, at this point, I probably can't do better than read to you from... John Bunyan's autobiography, as he tells about his condition before he came to faith in Christ. Let me just read. This is excerpts. I'm leaving out sections as I go along. This is what he says. From that time, I began to see something of the vanity and inward wretchedness. That's an interesting word. And inward wretchedness of my wicked heart. For as yet I knew no great matter therein, but now it began to be discovered unto me, and also to work at that rate for wickedness as it never did before. Now what's that? That's verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. See, sin came alive. 
He says it worked at a rate for wickedness as it never did before. Sin came alive. Now, I evidently found <clears throat> that lusts and corruptions would strongly put forth themselves within me in wicked thoughts and desires which I did not regard before. Nay, thought I, now I grow worse and worse. Now am I farther from conversion than ever I was before. Wherefore, I began to sink greatly in my soul and began to entertain such discouragements in my heart as laid me low as hell. Sin came alive and what? I died. I was driven as with a tempest. My heart would be unclean. The Canaanites would dwell in the land. I saw I had a heart that would sin and that lay under a law that would condemn. Now listen to this. But all this while, as to the act of sinning, I never was more tender than now. I durst not take a pen or a stick, though but so big as a straw, for my conscience now was sore and would smart at every touch. He didn't even want to pick up a twig out of somebody's lawn because it was like stealing. He says, I never was more tender than now. And I see this is a guy that realizes his sinfulness and he's wanting not to sin. All right? I could not now tell how to speak my words for fear I should misplace them. Freddie might say something wrong. Oh, how gingerly did I then go in all that I did or said. I found myself as on a miry bog that shook if I did but stir. See, just like he didn't dare to even move or speak for fear he might sin. And there was left both of God, and there was left both of God and Christ and the Spirit and all good things. But my original and inward pollution... That, that was my plague and my affliction. That, I say, at a dreadful rate, always putting forth itself within me, that I had the guilt of to amazement. By reason of that, I was more loathsome in my own eyes than was a toad. Now, how does somebody get loathsome in their own eyes? It's because they realize that the law is good and they delight in the law of God in their mind but they see that they're sinful, of flesh sold into bondage to sin. I thought I was that that loathsome in God's eyes too. Sin and corruption, I said, would as naturally bubble out of my heart as water would bubble out of a fountain. I thought now that everyone had a better heart than I had. See, he agrees with the law that it's good. I could have changed my heart with anybody. I thought none but the devil himself could have equalized me for inward wickedness and pollution of mind. I fell, therefore, at the sight of my own vileness, deeply into despair. Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? And thus I continued a long while, even for some years together. I mean, he went on like this for years in despair at, at the sight of his own vileness. Now, this is not somebody that says, look, I know I got caught and I regret that I got caught and I'm having to pay the consequences. This is somebody that sees that God's demands are good. And he realizes that he really is wicked. And he realizes that he really deserves to go to hell. And he's taken God's side against himself. Now, that's a person who's delighting in the law of God in his mind.
But he sees another law in his members, making him a prisoner to the law of sin in his members. And you see all that? That's what Paul's talking about here in Romans 7. Now, not every person goes through everything just like that before they become a Christian. But there has to be some kind of realization that God's good and that I'm a sinner, and I really am a sinner, before you ever need a Savior. Otherwise, you don't need a Savior. And so, that's the... Who is this? Who is this man that I just read about here? John Bunyan before his conversion, but who is it? It's the man to whom the commandment has come. He delights in the law of God in his mind, but he sees another law in his members making him a prisoner to the law of sin in his members. What does he cry? Well, he cries, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me? He doesn't know. Who will set me free from this body of death? And then verse 25 begins with a momentary or anticipatory cry of relief that will be developed um, more fully in verse 2 of chapter 8. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Who will, who will set me free? Christ Jesus will set me free. But anyway, the main body of verse 25 uh, is just a summary of all that Paul has said in this whole section. Now, now this is, but this is the summary. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. Now, you've got to remember that's a summary of everything he said thus far. In other words, he doesn't mean when he says this that there's two tendencies within me, and by and large I'm doing the good, and occasionally I sin. That's not what he means. He's, what he's saying is the same thing he's been saying right before this. He's saying that with my mind, I'm wanting to do what's right, but I am being made a prisoner to the law of sin which is in my members. In other words, he's talking about defeat. He's not talking about tendencies to sin. He's talking about being defeated by sin. And that's one of the things that's wrong with a lot of the ways that people approach this. This man is being defeated by the flesh and made a prisoner to the law of sin. Now, I think that Isaac Watts summed all this up very well in a hymn that he wrote. And this is what's in, what it's entitled, Conviction of Sin by the Law. Romans 7, verses 8, 9, and 14 to 24. Now that's significant. Romans 7, verses 8, 9, and 14 to 24. Conviction of Sin by the Law. This is Isaac Watts. Lord, how secure my conscience was, and felt no inward dread. I was alive without the law, and thought my sins were dead. My hopes of heaven were firm and bright, but since the precept came with a convincing power and light, I find how vile I am. My guilt appeared but small before, till terribly I saw... How perfect, holy, just, and pure was thine eternal law. Then felt my soul the heavy load. My sins revived again. I had provoked a dreadful God, and all my hopes were slain. I'm like a, helpy, I'm like a helpless captive, sold under the power of sin. I cannot do the good I would, nor keep my conscience clean. 
My God, I cry with every breath for some kind power to save, to break the yoke of sin and death, and thus redeem the slave. Now, that's what this section is about. It's about a man struggling under the law. And if we look over this thing, what are we supposed to come away with? I mean, what, are you, what do you really need to get out of this as you look at it? Well, what you need to get out of this is that God's law is wonderful and good. It's a description of His character. But it never was given to justify men or to sanctify men, to enable them to overcome sin. It never was given because men are of flesh and, they, and the law can only be fulfilled in the realm of the Spirit. God never gave His law for me to justify myself through it or for me to sanctify myself through it. All the law does is increase the power of sin over those who are in the flesh. So what did He give the law for? Well, He gave the law in order for it to do just what it did to Paul. He gave the law so that when the Holy Spirit takes that and applies it to a man, it will drive him to despair so that he will cry out to the Lord and come to Christ. That's why He gave the law. You see, in Paul's mind, when he thinks of the Christian life, Paul does not think of a law-centered life for a Christian. He says, you've been released from the law so that you might be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that you might actually have some fruit now. He says, we died to the law. We've been released from the law so that we serve in newness of the Spirit. Capital S, that is, the Holy Spirit. We serve in newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. In other words, in Paul's mind, the Christian life is not trying to look at a standard and trying to keep it. The Christian life is being married to Christ. And the thing that produces holiness in your life is not the law. The thing that produces holiness in your life is the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and so on. And he says in verse 4 of chapter 8, if you walk in the Spirit the righteousness of the law will be fulfilled in you. And the big thing is having your heart and mind filled with with Christ and with God and with the Spirit. Not having your heart and mind filled with this list of rules that you've got to try to obey. It's really true. You know, it's something you can preach, you can beat somebody with their duty, you know, and beat them and beat them and beat them with that, and they... You know, you've had it happen to yourself. You make all these resolutions, you don't actually change. But if you get a little glimpse of Christ, it motivates you like nothing imaginable to serve God. And you get a taste of the Holy Spirit working in your life, you want to go all out. I mean, because there's no life over here in trying to do this thing, why am I doing this thing? Because ultimately, the only reason ought to be because I want to please Christ. I mean, we can get in this mindset, you know, well, here I've got this sin problem. I need to get take care of that sin. I need to get victory over that sin. Concentrating on that sin. Well, why is it a sin in the first place? Because it's something contrary to the character of the one whom you love. And if you get in touch with Christ, you know what? Temptations lose their power when He is not. Well, anyway, this is the miserable condition of those who are of flesh sold into bondage to sin. 
Now, how unspeakably glorious, then, are the opening words of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, there's deliverance in Christ from both the penalty and the power of sin. Everything that he's talked about, it's all in Christ. It's something the law couldn't do because it was weak through the flesh. But God has done it in Christ through His death on the cross. Well, um, Lord willing, we'll, we'll consider more next time um, these different views. Some of the dangers of the view that I've just presented to you, it's possible to take it to an extreme that's not biblical, just like everything else. And uh, some of the good points and some of the dangers of the other views that have been taken of Romans 7. We, we want to go out of this time in Romans 7 with, the, with an understanding of what Paul's trying to accomplish here. And with an understanding of what's wrong and what's dangerous about a misunderstanding of the passage. And so, Lord willing, that's what we'll be doing at least the next time or two before we go on into chapter 8. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for this amazing passage when we think of it being written by a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Uh, who would have such an insight into the law as to say that uh, the law is holy and righteous and good, and yet the law is impotent and weak and helpless to do anything for those who are in the flesh. And um, we're so thankful for the teaching that Paul gives where he says that the, the law came in that transgression might increase. But we've been freed from the from the whole realm. We've died to that realm. We've passed out of that realm. We're alive in a new realm. And uh, we're now joined and united to Christ, to Him who was raised from the dead. And we're alive in heavenly places. And we're alive in a new realm. We're raised from the dead. And uh, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we've been enslaved to God and been enslaved to righteousness. And that we can now have our fruit resulting in holiness. And Lord, we just pray today that You'd keep for every Christian here, that You'd keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the, um, the author and the finisher and perfecter of our faith. And I pray for everyone who doesn't truly know You, that You'd help them to see that the, the thing of trying to keep rules um, is absolutely impossible and it's nothing but death. And uh, that it's it's possible to actually be set free from that endless cycle, and um, to die to that whole realm, and to be raised up to walk in newness of life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's see. Any announcements?
How old is she, Wes? Be good to remember Brad and Krista in prayer. Her babies do any time. A um, couple of things that I might get you used to the idea. Joe Sim, from who's been in Japan, is coming to Kirksville soon for a visit. He's back, going to be back for a little while. Um, Bentley Camp coming up February 8th through 11th in Bentley, Louisiana. And Bethany, Brandon, John Dees, and maybe some others will be going to that. Mac Thomason is one of the people who will be preaching. And uh, we learned that Mac Thomason has been asked to go to Fiji again to speak there. That's April 3 through 17. The Lord has already provided a ticket for him. And so um, that is quite a quite an opportunity that Mac has there. 11-hour flight to Fiji. Um, college Bible study tonight at uh, 5.30. And one other thing I might uh, just mention again, I think most of you know this, but Nora wrote an article to the Index against uh, abortion, and the Lord really helped in that, it seemed like, so we could pray that I mean, no matter how clearly things are presented, takes the Holy Spirit to open people's eyes. If you have